When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 223, FDR Learns of the Coming Attack. Last time, on November 26, 1941, the 28-ship Japanese task force left Haitakapu Bay of the Kurao Islands and headed into the North Pacific Ocean. Now, it was up to the gods to determine how rough the seas would be and or the fleet would be discovered, before reaching the point where it would launch its two massive waves of fighters and bombers at the American ships in dock at Pearl Harbor. Now that the carrier-centered attack fleet was on its way, the spies already stationed on the islands and those recently arrived were peppered with detailed questions, whose answers would help form up the last touches of the coming aerial attack. Some of the first information sent back to the approaching fleet was that the American air patrols did not seem to go beyond 200 miles north of Oahu, and none at all to the west of the island, should another attack or escape vector be needed. Other items gleaned from the spies were that, on Sundays, most of the ships were in harbor that only about ten patrol planes were in the air at either dusk or dawn, and that of the vessels in harbor, they usually had only the standard supplies and provisions aboard. They were not, strictly speaking, ready for combat. But one of the great mysteries of the attack on Pearl Harbor was how the Japanese spy Yoshikawa knew and reported that the American military's scouting patrols to the north, from where the attack would come, were minimal and poorly organized. It's doubted he bought this information, but probably that it came down to painstaking and time-consuming observation on his part. He may have been pretending to be a drunk and a womanizer, but underneath it all, he would do anything for his empire and his emperor. Either way, fate had decided that the path the Japanese fighters and bombers would take was thinly screened by the Americans. Back in Washington, the Americans negotiating with the Japanese ambassador Nomura and special assistant recently arrived Kusuru were dealt a blow during the second half of November, but had no idea where it came from. Previously, either getting ahead of themselves or hoping to jumpstart meaningful talks with Secretary of State Hull, the two Japanese representatives had offered up Plan A, the pulling out of troops from southern Indochina, but then added on further withdrawals, but those that were a part of Plan B, only to be offered if Plan A was rejected. However, Hull had not yet responded to any of it. 
When this mistake was reported back to Tokyo, Foreign Minister Togo was outraged and gave Nomura a severe dressing down. But what was done could not be undone. And obviously, the Americans were not going to agree with Plan A, but neither with Plan B, at least that part of it that had been prematurely offered. Hence, Togo, now backed into a corner, ordered Nomuro and Kurusu to submit Tokyo's final proposal. This was the full version of Plan B, that Japan would pull its forces out of southern Indochina and, in fact, go no further south. In exchange, the United States would unfreeze Japanese assets, stop aiding Chiang Kai-shek, and help Japan obtain oil from the Dutch East Indies. This would either be accepted, though there wasn't much time left for talk, or it would not be. And Japan's answer to that was already on the seas of the North Pacific. As for the withering message from Togo to his two representatives and their subsequent submission to Hull of Japan's final plan, not that it was described as such, this had all taken place on November 20th. And it was on this same day when Hull was going to respond to the merged plans A and plan B given to him earlier. But before he could get too far, and what response he had given was not promising, the man had come down with the flu. As he was 70 years old, this illness hit him hard, and so he was forced to abandon the talks. But just three days later, on November 23rd, Hull had recovered and so met again with Nomura and Kurusu. The Secretary of State picked up where he had left off. He asked that since the Japanese had told the Americans earlier in the spring that whatever oil they had left was going to normal civilian use, but now could clearly be seen to helping in the invasion of South French Indochina, why should Tokyo be believed now with its future promises that clearly benefited Japan more than the United States or the various other Asian countries for that matter? And why were the Japanese newspapers filled with so much vitriol towards the United States? As for Plan B, but unbeknownst to the American, Japan's final offer, Hull responded by saying that to accept it would mean that the United States would almost become a partner with Japan in its aggression against the rest of Asia. By sitting silently by, nay, even more, by helping the Japanese obtain more oil, the United States might as well attack and occupy those countries themselves. In short, the answer to Plan B was not no, but there would be no response. This was how little Hull thought of the latest Japanese offer of peace. With a gauntlet thrown down by both sides, Hull then met with Chief Naval Officer Harold Betty Stark. The men talked for a long time and concluded that Japan was now probably going to do something rash, but the Americans were damned if they knew what. The next day, November 24th, Stark sent a message to his fleet commanders, including Admiral Husband Kimmel in Hawaii. A positive outcome with Japan looks very doubtful, 
a surprise aggressive movement in any direction, including attack on Philippines or Guam, is a possibility. And again, the next day, November 25th, Stark followed this up with a message just for Kimmel. As for the President and Hull, neither would be surprised of a Japanese surprise attack. An attack on the Philippines would be the most embarrassing thing that could happen to us. Which shows to what degree, still, the Westerners were underestimating either the boldness of the Japanese or their desperation. Back to Stark's message. There are some here who think it likely to occur. I do not give it the weight others do, but I included it because of the strong feeling among some people. I still rather look for an advance into Thailand, Indochina, or the Burma Road areas as the most likely. I won't go into the pros and cons of what the U.S. may do. I will be damned if I know. I wish I did. We may do something, or we may do nothing. But I think it more likely we will do something to be ready for anything. Hello everyone, Ray here. Did you know that 66% of men lose their hair by age 35? Thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. It's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. Do you want your hairline to recede, or do you want to do something about it first? Which makes me ask, but why do guys then turn to weird solutions or do nothing when they can turn to medicine and science? That's where 4 comes in, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. Well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. No waiting room, no awkward doctor visits. Save hours by going to 4 It's so easy. Answer a few quick questions, then the doctor will review and can prescribe what you need. Products are shipped directly to your door. As for me, it's way too late on the hair, alas, but I am checking out their skincare products. But it's not too late for you. Order now. My listeners get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See their website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 slash world war. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash world war. For slash world war. Hymns, handsome, healthy you. One Japanese male in particular who recently came to Hawaii was Suguru Suzuki, having been delivered to the island by the last Japanese passenger ship to sail this far west before the attack on Pearl. In reality, he was the youngest lieutenant commander of the Japanese Imperial Navy and currently acting as a spy for the Navy General Staff. Once he disembarked, Suzuki gathered up the latest information the spies had obtained. In a matter of days, the Japanese passenger ship left Hawaii and Suzuki made his way to the approaching attack fleet. There Suzuki told the men in charge of carrying out the attack aboard the carrier Agaki 
Commander-in-Chief of the First Fleet, Nagumo, Captain Genda, who had helped work out the details of the coming air attack, and bomber pilot Captain Mitsuo Fuchida, who would be leading the first wave of attacking aircraft, of what he had found. First, the good news. As the passenger ship had taken the route currently being used by the attacking fleet, not one foreign vessel was seen, either coming to or going away from Hawaii. The north lanes were clear. However, there was bad news to be reported. Though American aircraft were spotted, that had to have come from a carrier, there were currently no enemy carriers in harbor. Suzuki finished his report by saying that if the element of surprise was lost, the Americans would probably put up a fierce defense. And to be sure, this would be followed by a wounded but not beaten U.S. military seeking revenge. In response to Suzuki's report, Genda and Fuchida came up with two plans. One, if the United States personnel were ready for the attack, and two, if they were to be caught off guard. If the U.S. were somehow informed and had their various guns loaded and pointing up to the skies, Fuchida, who would be leading the first wave, would fire off two flares. This would mean he wanted the dive bombers and high-level bombers to come in first. After their attack caused the requisite confusion, only then would the torpedo bombers come in to destroy the U.S. warships. If, however, the Americans were caught off guard, Fuchida would only fire off one flare, thereby indicating the torpedo bombers should come in first to strike the unsuspecting vessels. Only then would the dive and high-level bombers come in to finish off anything missed. It was then Genda's turn to be overcome with anxiety as he worried about his torpedo bombers and the harbor's shallow waters. So he brought up the idea to Furukawa, who would be leading the horizontal bombers, that if they could land their bombs right beside the ship's turret, and if the bombs could ignite the gun's powder magazines, then the ships would be torn apart by its own weapons. However, Furukawa, knowing that just hitting the ship in itself was the goal, much less hitting a particular place, refused to promise, or really, even to try. Genda pushed it with, do it with spiritual power. But Furukawa, not wanting to be boxed in with such an intangible, replied, don't ask such unreasonable things. Both men turned away from each other as the tension mounted. Still, what neither man could know was that some of the bombs would, indeed, hit some of the American vessels right behind the turret, thus using its own powder to destroy the ship and the men it held. As the tension rose between Tokyo and Washington throughout 1941, it was decided that Secretary of State Hull, Secretary of Navy Frank Knox, and Secretary of War Henry Stimson would meet every Tuesday morning at 9.30. Thus they met on November 25th, and Hull showed the other two his proposed response to Japan's Plan B. The United States would release some of Japan's frozen assets, and the Japanese would draw down the number of troops 
they had in northern Indochina to 25,000. This status would remain in place for three months, so goodwill could be re-established, and then further steps would be taken to walk back from the building crisis. As is now known, even this offer was far too short for what Tokyo would settle for. Hence, their attack fleet would not have been turned around. That same morning in Oahu, Admiral Kimmel and General Short of the United States Army were arguing about who was in charge of the island's defenses. But for Kimmel, Hawaii was only a part of his responsibility. As the commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet and of the U.S. Pacific Command, he had other areas to worry about, closer to Japan, like Guam and Midway. Thus, as the two men argued, they asked others in the room, their assistants, if they thought Hawaii was in danger of being attacked and or invaded. The answers, unsurprisingly, were all over the place. But everyone could agree that Guam and Midway were in at least as much danger of attack as Pearl, if not more so. But to make sure Oahu was kept safe, Admiral Kimmel had his Grumman F-4F Wildcats, a carrier-based fighter, sent to the other locations, while he kept hold of his superior Curtis P-40 Warhawks, a single-engine, single-seat, all-metal fighter in Hawaii. And still on that same day, November 25th, back in the States, Hull, Knox, and Stimson met again, but this time at the White House with FDR, General Marshall, and CNO Stark. Before them was the November 22nd message from Foreign Minister Togo to Namura and Suzuki, and several key phrases of this had them worried. It stated that the solution we desire, which probably meant getting the United States to acquiesce to Tokyo's demands, had the deadline of November 29th. After that, things are automatically going to happen. So, what did that mean, and why were they automatically going to happen? Was something already in motion, or was this a trick? Did Tokyo know or guess that the United States had broken their codes and was using a seemingly weakness as a strength to frighten the Americans into giving in? It certainly wasn't beyond the imagination of the Machiavellian Japanese ministers. As FDR kept few records of his thoughts or decisions, the better to deny them if necessary, it was Secretary of War Stimson's diary that must be relied upon at this moment. According to his recollection, FDR responded to this by saying, it is possible that some U.S. possession could be attacked as early as the first Monday after the mysterious deadline of November 29th. Furthermore, the Japanese have a track record of attacking without warning. So, the president's thinking was, how do we get Japan to hit us first, thus gaining the moral high ground, but in such a way as to not inflict too much military damage. It was a dangerous game Washington was playing with the Japanese, and it would not be the last. But whatever was going to happen 
would happen soon. Still, on November 25th, clearly a fateful day, Pacific Commander Admiral Kimmel was talking to Vice Admiral William F. Halsey, Jr. about beefing up the air strength of Guam and Midway. Together, they decided that the two carrier task forces in Hawaii would transport the needed aircraft. Halsey, with his Task Force 8, which included the carrier Enterprise, the heavy cruisers Northampton, Chester, and Salt Lake City, and nine destroyers, would take 12 Grumman F-4F-3 Wildcat fighters to the Marines on Wake Island. But then came a message from CNO Stark about the meeting between the civilian and military elite with FDR concerning the November 29th deadline. Based on this, Admiral Kimmel asked Halsey if he needed more escort ships from Pearl to go with him. But Halsey unknowingly sealing the fate of some of the ships left behind, replied, Hell no. If I have to run, I don't want anything to interfere with my running. Which was solid tactics. But again, this meant more vessels would be in harbor on December 7th. Also on that day, it was decided Rear Admiral John H. Newton, commanding Task Force 12 of the carrier Lexington, heavy cruisers Chicago, Portland, and Astoria, and five additional destroyers, would leave to take eight Vought SB2U-3 Vindicators to Midway. These obsolete carrier-based dive bombers wouldn't stand much of a chance if the Japanese Zeros were sent against them, but the troops there would be appreciative of anything that came their way. As for the third carrier of the Pacific Fleet, the Saratoga, Having just been overhauled, it was still in the vicinity of San Diego. The two carrier task forces would leave out on November 28th. Back in Washington, due to the time difference, the city was just starting its own November 25th, when a G-2 Army Intelligence message came to Secretary Stimson. It told of a large Japanese expeditionary force that was leaving the Shanghai area. It held at least 40 ships and was traveling south, probably past Formosa. But that meant it could then head for the Philippines or to Burma to cut off the road feeding supplies to the Chinese nationalist government. Or it could head to the Dutch East Indies. It seemed for those Americans in the know that one of these locations was about to be attacked after the November 29th deadline. So Stimson told Hull and then wrote up a memo that was hand-delivered to the White House. Strangely, Stimson did not hear back from the president for the rest of the day. The next morning, November 26th, he then reached FDR by phone. For whatever reason, the president had not been handed this note. This Roosevelt exploded at but then exploded again over the duplicity of the Japanese. He screamed over the phone while they were negotiating with him, in which we were asking for a withdrawal of their invading troops in China, they should be sending a further expedition down to Indochina. FDR then called Hull and tore into him. But really, his anger was at Tokyo, 
but to the Secretary of State, it seemed, it was directed right at him. Ironically, Hull had been close to success in pulling Japan away from Germany and Italy, of getting Japanese troops out of China, if one goes by what he thought was the real situation. To him, the negotiations were painful, but progress was being made. How could he have known that there was a very real deadline, that which, on the other side of it, was total war between their two countries? But now that Washington knew Japan was preparing for war while talking peace, which was Tokyo's greatest fear, the United States was done with compromise or trial stages. After all, what did they have to lose? This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. While FDR was raging at Hull and Stimson that morning of November 26th, Nomura and Caruso believed they had come upon an idea. Not knowing the details of the coming attack, they sent a message back to Foreign Minister Togo that asked, What if we got President Roosevelt to start a dialogue directly with Emperor Hirohito about setting up a neutralized zone in Southwest Asia? The two nations could decide which countries could be added to that list, and this would, at the very least, start talks on the highest level. But as Togo knew what was coming, in a matter of days, which made such a drawn-out process irrelevant, he shut the whole thing down. So that same afternoon, Nomura and Karusu were about to hear another no, but this one would be the equivalent of a slap to the face. As they were about to discover, the United States who knew they were being lied to, and that a deadline of some sort was approaching, which then something was going to happen somewhere without a declaration of war, was done playing the game. When the two men were brought before Secretary Hull, he handed them a document entitled, Steps to be Taken by the Government of the United States and by the Government of Japan, which will go down in history as the whole note. This was not an agreement or some first step 
and a long process to beg Japan for peace. This was Washington's decision as to what would happen, period. First, Japan would withdraw all military personnel and even police units from China and Indochina. That the United States and Japan would not tolerate any other government in China but the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek. Of course, Nomura and Kurusu said that if they were to send this note to Tokyo, what little momentum still existed for peace would be killed. Hull remained silent. Then the Japanese representatives asked Hull to be open to changes before they sent it to Foreign Minister Togo. Hull said no. Then they asked for a gradual timeline for withdrawing troops. Should Tokyo agree to this? Hull said no. Then they asked for a tit-for-tat process. First, Japan would do something to reestablish goodwill. Then it would be America's turn, which would then be repeated until both sides made enough concessions to pull back from war. Hull said no. But then Nomura, remembering FDR's words, said, as there is no last word between friends, could all of them meet again, this time with the president? Hull, knowing the current state of FDR's mood and that he would be fully backed, said, that could be arranged. Nomura and Kurusu were relieved. They should not have been. When the two men left, and Hull was alone, he called Secretary of War Stimson. Stimson later wrote that Hull said, I have washed my hands of it, and it is in the hands of you and Knox, the Army and the Navy. Before the sun went down on November 26th, the United States consulate in Tokyo warned all American citizens to leave Japan as soon as they possibly could. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So um, I'm about to go to Europe for three weeks. I'm going to try to put out one more episode before I take off on July 2nd. But for now, I just wanted to say hi and welcome aboard some new members. Um, Diana D. from San Mateo, California. Ian M. from Copenhagen, Denmark. Timothy H. from O'Fallon, Missouri. Ian S. from Canberra, Australia. Noel M. from Wollstonecraft, New South Wales, Australia. Mark D. and he bought a Churchill mug. Thank you, Mark. Mike of the Network Guys at Federal Way, Washington. And Dennis O. from St. Paul, Minnesota bought a Churchill mug. And lastly, I would like to thank Nicholas A. from Los Angeles, California for buying some CDs. So again, thank you for all your support. I really do appreciate it. Um, as far as the Monopoly World War II game, I have not forgotten that. I'm probably going to have to do that when I get back. But if I put out another episode, hopefully I can squeeze that in. Um, just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com and put Monopoly in the subject line. And I'll do the drawing with my daughters. So um, I'll be doing some live stuff on Facebook on the World War II page, and I'll be doing that as well when I'm in Europe and taking tons of pictures. So uh, 
Uh, I'll be seeing some of you there, and I'm really looking forward to that. And when I go live on Facebook, I'll give you some dates and places of where I'll be. And if not, um, or at the very least, I'll put it on the next episode as well, which pretty much means I'm going to be putting out an episode before I leave now that I just said that. So thank you all again for listening. Thank you for your patience. And I hope to see some of you soon in Paris, uh, Corsica, Rome, Florence, and Athens. Take care, everyone.